there, Marjorie. Beautiful sound. Oh, there's nothing like it. Music is the key to the heaving pagan breast. And chee chee chee. Oh, they're heaving pagan. And I told you you shouldn't have had that third cheeseburger. Hey, lies within the soul of a somewhat civilized person. By the way, how is your garden of vulgarity growing? Is it uh, flourishing nicely, rich and ripe with little tentacles? Bring up there big, man. Big, big, big. to salute a gentleman who finally did it for all of us in Hillsdale, New Jersey. Uh, let's see. We've got a terrible humming here today. Let's check. Hello, one, two, three, four. Hello, test, one, two, three, four. Yeah, it's not bad. Bad hum in the studio. Hello, one, two, three, four. This is one of the studios that gambling threw away a few years ago, and we've refurbished it for all the nighttime talent here. Hillsdale, New Jersey. Uh, such a, what, is that a town? Yeah, I guess so. The superintendent of the Hillsdale Department of Public Works says he'd rather drive a garbage truck. Robert, Robert Routh has submitted his, re, his uh, resignation to city council with the provision that he be rehired as a garbage man. Uh, Routh said there'd be less pressure on the latter job. And we'd like to salute him. By the way, speaking of uh, garbage men, did you see the uh, English garbage man on TV the other day who showed up to do a guest hitch with the uh, New York garbage man. He was on a bus man's holiday, you know, garbage man's holiday, and he came and went on a couple of routes. And he was asked, uh, I, I watched the guys ask him things like, uh, well, is it the same here as it is there? And he said, well, uh, hey, I'd love to really much rather. I'd love to have the money they make here, but I think I prefer English garbage. You know, it's a professional opinion. I, I, I suppose uh, with crumpets and all that kind of stuff, it is a little style to it. Uh, you don't just get a lot of crumpled up uh, Pepsi-Cola cans and stuff like that. But then the, the, I thought the nicest comment was when the guy says to him, do you like being a garbage man? He said, well, I'm sorry, well, we don't call it garbage man. It's a sanitary engineer, please. And uh, with that, the guy standing next to him was an American garbage man. He says, wait a minute, bud, I'm not a garbage man. I'm a... I'm a, uh, a debris collector technician. And I thought that was kind of nice. And so everybody has to have some kind of a little, a little uh, I suppose you can say title. Uh, titles are more important than realities anyway today. And, uh, in fact, I know a guy, a friend of mine, uh, went into the business here recently of selling coats of arms. And uh, you've seen these ads. You know, you get your family coat of arms and... All that kind of jazz, and he just makes them up. He doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, you know, <laughs> doesn't make any difference. So if your name is Asher Schlager, you'll find that you have a, a long line of English knights that go all the way back to uh, Richard the Lionhearted, and of course it was Asher Schlager the Ready, and uh, he'll go all the way back and give you a fantastic coat of arms, and people love it. They just buy them up as quick as they can get them. Hey, listen. Speaking of uh, of. Uh, you know, the unsung, as we hear tonight, saluting the garbage men and so on. 
Uh, I've for years uh, felt the vague uh, feeling of inferiority about various things that people can do. For example, I've never been able to whistle. Uh, I've, uh, my, well, of course, it started early in my case. My mother could whistle like a banshee. Fantastic. She'd come out on the porch and stick two fingers in her mouth and whistle. You could hear her seven, maybe ten miles away when the wind was right. You know, that high-pitched whistle. And kids used to envy me. They'd say, your mother could really whistle. And, uh, boy, and I, I think it was a terrible cross to bear because I never could whistle. I never really, I never learned to do that. Can you do that, Mac? Can you whistle like that? Can you really do that? What do you push on when you put your fingers in your mouth? <laughs> I've never been able to do it, see? Well, tonight we have a special salute to a little-known sporting event uh, that uh, all of us can take part in. Many, many are called, but very, very few are chosen. And uh, can I have a little music there? I want a little, little uproarious music tonight. We'd like to salute a great athlete, a great performer, in fact, several great performers. I would like to salute tonight a man you've probably never heard of, but you know it's sad in a way because here's a man who does something that very few people have ever accomplished. And in fact, he is absolutely considered the best in the whole world at what he does. And I think anybody who's the best in anything in the whole world should get a little uh, approval now. And hey, I'd love to see this on the wide, wide world of sports. You know, they, they have such clean limb sports on the wide, wide world of sports and the wide world of sports. They, people are always swimming and people named Debbie are winning world titles. And, and uh, there's always these pasty-faced looking announcers named Jim, 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 Jim K. And they got earphones stuck in their heads and toupees on the top of their head and they're wearing those jackets that say ABC Sports. And it's also clean limb. If I'm real nitty-gritty sports ready, get on it. Bring it up there big. Tucked up to the way we want to so Now, reset that. We'll be using that in Melbourne here. Big man. All right. We would like to salute the sport here tonight that uh, I want all of you to listen very carefully to this because, and incidentally, it'll probably offend many of you. But then again, life offends many of you, so we have to accept that, too. Once a year, all the chewing tobacco fanciers in Mississippi gathered down in Billy John Crumpton's pasture just six miles west of Raleigh and challenged each other for the privilege of wearing the spit crown of the world. The promoters, <laughs> the promoters, the Raleigh, Mississippi Junior Chamber of Commerce say it's the only contest of its kind in the whole world. That's not surprising. The contest is held the fourth Saturday of each July. Raleigh lies within the heart of three major Mississippi metropolitan areas, etc. Billy John Crumpton's pasture on this past July Saturday, retains the flavor of old times and old customs. Big-eyed, solemn babies on the hip. A massive array of foodstuffs, bare feet and overalls, stacks of chewing tobacco, and piney woods locale with a log cabin full of early American antiques and an outhouse, quote, borrowed from the Sharon Baptist Church and moved two miles to the spit site, especially for the competition. As a sign, gives the outhouse gets a little credit there. The big draw, of course, is the spit itself, the occasion for much technical uh, virtuosity by the MC, who's been emceeing the spit contest for many years and knows all about various types of spitting. It's serious business to the spitters, who have spent most of the months previous to the contest back behind the outhouse practicing 
for distance and accuracy. The two main events. Now, when you hear what these guys can do, though, you're going to understand this is no joke. Surprisingly enough, what do you mean surprisingly? The tobacco salesmen who are present to give out free samples, they bring about a million spits with them, say that the chewing of tobacco is on the upswing, becoming more popular as smoking declines. Did you know that chewing tobacco is now under a great, uh, tremendous rise? Ever since all this business about cigarettes and all that stuff, so now guys are chewing tobacco. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, I saw something not too long ago that I wouldn't have believed unless I actually saw it with my own eyes. I went into a... When we were out uh, shooting television, we've been doing a TV series all over the country, and, and we were out in, in, uh, in, of all places, Wyoming. Now listen to this, Jim. You'll be interested in how things are changing in the country. We here in New York don't really see it. Now I'm in the middle of a place called Little America, Wyoming which is a great name for a town. And it was named after Admiral Byrd's place. Uh, Admiral Byrd had this uh, uh, thing in the Arctic when he was uh, exploring the Arctic, and he called this little community he made, Little America. Well, they, they've named this town Little America. And actually, it's not a town. It's a, just a giant motel. And it's like an oasis in the middle of the desert. And uh, they, have, they, they claim they have the biggest gas station in the world there. They have 75 pumps going constantly. These giant trucks arriving, the guys put in 300 gallons of gas and all. Well, now here's the point. They had about 10 different vending machines there. You know, cigarettes, candy, and so on. And there was a vending machine that had cigars and cigarettes. But get this, it had Copenhagen snuff. <laughs> you get the, you know that, you've seen that flat cans of snuff. I have never seen Copenhagen snuff come out of a vending machine. They also had eight-hour cut plug chewing tobacco. And they had uh, Mule Twist. Have you ever seen Mule Twist? Well, <laughs> Mule Twist. Uh, I wish I could tell you uh, what, what guys call it, why they call it Mule Twist, but that's another story. Then they had another one called uh, Sweet as... Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a uh, uh, bit of trivia test here. What chewing tobacco uses the slogan, Sweet as a Nut? Come on, that's their slogan. He knows... Right. Exact demo. You can always tell. Guys who wear suspenders always know about chewing tobacco. There's, a, there's, a, there's an affinity. I'm sorry, Jim. Uh, that's right. Uh, Beech Nut always has this little slogan, sweet as a nut. And uh, you could get these things out of a vending machine. And, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, that must be just for looks, see? So I went into the coffee shop, and I'm sitting there having a cup of coffee, and I could see the vending machines out there. And, it, and it, it amazed me that about every third guy that went up to the vending machines went to the chewing tobacco vending machine. I have, you know, you don't see many guys chewing tobacco here in New York, but apparently it's on the tremendous upswing out there. And uh, there are all kinds of chewing tobaccos. There's, uh, for example, there's Navy Cut Plug. Uh, there's, uh, as I said, there's Mule Twist. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's right. There's the, well, there's the pack type, and then there's the cup type, uh, and then there's the what they call the quid type, which is a twisted kind. It's a, tw a quid twist, and uh, there's there's and they're cured in different ways. For example, there's one that's cured in apple. Uh, they call it apple plug. It's got the kind of like apple juice in it. Then there's another kind that's cured in peaches, and uh, down the line. But do you want to hear about a tremendous sporting event that involves? Involves because uh, one of the great moments in my life, one of the tremendous educational moments in my life, came with a package of beech nut chewing tobacco. But anyway, 
Uh, he says, Big George Kraft, a spry 69, at this moment holds the world's record for the longest spit in competition. Now, you might have done something better just standing around the drive-in, but this is in competition when the chips are down. And what, how, how far do you think a human being can spit in competition? What would you guess? Eight feet, you say, Matt? How about you? How about you, Jerry? Matt says eight feet. Huh, 20? What did you say? 30. Well, you're closer than that. The, the, the world's competition spit is 24 feet, 10 and one-half inches. And that fantastic, prodigious goober that was spit that time uh, was done in 1957 and still remains unbroken. That's a 10-year, 12-year record. And uh, 13, actually, now. And nobody has ever busted that record. And big George Kraft holds it. And uh, George Kraft, who's 69, has been chewing tobacco ever since he can remember. He learned to spit from his mother, quote, who could hit the fireplace from any spot in the room without getting a dab on the floor. She's real talented. She could hit the fireplace from any place on the floor. He bemoans the fact that his mother never had a chance to show her ability professionally. <laughs> That's true. There's a lot of unsung talent around. By the time he was 14... Listen to this. If you, if you want to hit talent, by the time he was 14, George could hit a lizard on the run five steps away. That's fantastic. But his professional life began, he really turned pro, at the age of 53 when he first became world champ. Now, age and lack of practice have taken their toll with George, and he seems resigned to letting the young blood take over. He expects that scourge of spitters. You realize that, the, you, you know, when you're a pitcher, when your arm goes bad, uh, that's the end of it. If you're a boxer, when your legs go bad, right? Well, you know what happens to a spitter? When he gets false teeth, it's all over. <laughs> and he figures that that's what's going to happen to him. For the past two years, Don Snyder of Eupora, a handsome blonde member of the Mississippi State University tennis team, has won the distance event. He's a big-time tennis player. And incidentally, the distance event is the glamour event. But he has never topped Big George's fantastic record spit in competition. And uh, he says he practiced for a year, quote, a couple hours a day to win his first title, and says in practice he has shot up to 29 feet. But he's never hit anything like that in competition. And here's what he has to say. I just keep plugging away. He says one day he's going to hit. After all the speeches are spoken, the songs wailed, and the food eaten, comes the climactic event of the day. In the front yard of the cabin, under the direction of the spit coordinator, he carefully rolls out butcher paper over masonite boards and draws a firing line at the cabin steps. This is the way it's actually done. The distance event has no boundaries other than the narrow aisle made by the white paper and lots of small boys who stand to watch. But the accuracy contest is judged by who comes closest to the center of a tiny spittoon, which is set up 12 feet away. And, and uh, you, remember, <laughs> you have to come closest to the center, not just hit the thing. I mean, can you imagine hitting a spittoon 12 feet away, and they're, they're arguing over millimeters who was closest to the center? And uh, the spit coordinator, who is a strong-stomached soul is also the official measurer. And here's the way it actually happens. The contestants amble to the line, one by one. 
They've been working up to this all day long, concentrating, thinking. Many of them don't even speak to their friends for two or three days before the event. And they've been chewing tobacco steadily, some of them as long as three or four days before the test. Get their jaws ready and limber, moving. Their jaws, as they walk forward towards the line, are slowly working to tobacco. They're chewing away. And incidentally, each one of them has his own favorite type of tobacco. And many of them endorse various tobaccos, like uh, Big George spits beech nut. You know, that kind of stuff. And so they're chewing their favorite tobacco as they walk up to the line. These are men that are dedicated. The crowd is hushed. They test the breeze with their fingers. This is very important. They may have to compensate for side winds or for cross currents to test the breeze. The stance is wide open. The way you stand, if you're going to do big-time spitting, Matt, you stand with your feet wide apart and even on the line together, both toes touching the line. They then lean backwards. They lean back. They bow their back backwards. Their backs are curved into taut bows. They lift two fingers to their puckered lips. You hold your fingers up. And then, quick, patooey, they launch amber-colored liquid streams toward the target. Zap, quick, patooey. And the crowd roars as they see magnificent athletes in action. And soon after the big spit is over and the winners are crowned, and incidentally they have a pucker queen, the crowd begins to wander away, hot, tired, overexcited, overfed, leaving half-empty paper plates of barbecue under the loblolly pines. Occasionally a blue-tipped coon dog sleeps among the debris, and they talk about the great spits that they have seen these days. Yep, the JCs this year said we hope this spit puts Raleigh on the map. We want folks to know that Raleigh is the cuspidor capital of the world. Big George Pratt is the uncrowned king of all spitters. If you think that's funny, you know, that's that's one sport that you can do at home. I mean, if you can get away, <laughs> you can get away with it. <laughs> so why don't you just see right now? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get the angry letters from mothers after this one. Uh, why don't you go out to the kitchen? So there's you know, some place where you can clean up easy. Go out to the kitchen right now. Take your stance at the edge of the linoleum, and just see how far 12 feet is. And see, and, and, and just take a plate, you know, put it out there and see how close you can come to it. <laughs> and you'll recognize what these guys are doing. And then, if you, if you want to try for distance, what you have to do, of course, is to stand at, at one end of the living room rug and try to lay one right in the middle of the kitchen floor. That's about 24 feet away, you know, it's a long heave. But, uh, this <laughs> well, you know, when you talk about, uh, talk about basic uh, folk talent, and uh, that is that to me is a, is a basic folk talent. Uh, there's so much of the stuff that 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 we walk around. That to me is a folk talent, genuinely a folk talent. Now, what is a folk talent? Well, it's something that all the people can do, and because they they, they can do it, hardly anybody ever recognizes it as an actual uh, as an actual feat. 
But I think that would make a fantastic uh, thing to watch on uh, on the wide world of sports. Now you talk about. Listen, I want to tell you. I'll go even further than that. Uh, when I was uh, when I was up at the Skowhegan Fair, I got talking to guys up there. This was up in Maine, and uh, there's a lot of talents that just never get recognized. I mean, by the big time people, they're recognized within their circle. Big George Stone, I'm sure, is the you know he's the Mickey Mantle, the Ted Williams of spitters, and uh, I'm I'm sure that Big George gives you know he gives competition tips to young spitters that are coming up, and. Uh, he, you know, he talks about techniques. I'm, I'm sure that he's even thinking of writing a book, you know, spitting for fun and profit. Uh, <laughs> how I won the world title. But uh, I, I was up at the Skowhegan Fair here a couple of weeks ago, and I was doing part of this TV show. And is it time to make a station break now? Pretty close. i got two more. All right, I'll make it right now. This is WOR New York. So uh, if, if you're sickened by tonight's show... Uh, you know who it's, you know, what's caused by it. We're doing it. It's, don't blame for all WMGM. They're very innocent down there. It's us that are doing it. Uh, WOR in New York. And, you know, uh, at the Skowhegan Fair, I, I saw, I saw something which, uh, turned me on. Uh, because it went back to something that as a kid I used to do. I, I it's like pool. Now, there are people who play pool. Pool is a strange game. I mean, either it sucks you in totally, and you just play pool like you're, you know, like you know, it's going out of style tomorrow, or you don't care about it at all. There's no in between, hardly. You notice that, Matthew? That, that, that either a guy's really good at pool, or he just doesn't play it at all. And there are certain sports like that. Horseshoes. Now, I, I saw a guy at Skowhegan who was pointed out to me. He says, "You know who that is?" And I said, "No, I'm just an ordinary guy walking along." He said, "Is one of the best." Horseshoe pitchers in the Eastern Seaboard, and I said, "No kidding." He says, "Yeah." He said, "You know that guy has been known to lay in forty consecutive ringers. Can you imagine throwing forty consecutive ringers?" Well, I, you know, I staggered back because uh, at one point I think all kids go through as male bo- uh, kids. Uh, this, this, I, I don't speak for girls at this point because I don't know. You know, I don't know whether girls go through game cycles. Where for a short period of time, like maybe a year or two years, or maybe even just one summer, you get completely involved in a specific maniacal pursuit of a game. Like I can remember at one point when I was about uh, 12 or 13, no, a little later, about 13 or 14, first years in high school, me and Bolas and Schwartz and Flick went through a pinochle phase. When we played pinochle, 24 hours a day when we were like uh, during the weekend we would play pinochle all day and all night and then at home when we come home from school we'd instantly run over to Bolus's basement and start playing pinochle again now we played fanatically and I might add pretty pretty well <laughs> actually you know after, you, after a while you know kids can do things very well if they, if they take it up it's just like chess uh, one of my old friends is Bobby Fisher and uh, the only way you can ever become a big-time chess player is start when you're a little kid. No big-time chess player that I ever heard of began playing chess, let's say, at the age of 20. They just never do. You just don't get that same feel for it. And so a kid at the age of three or four or five or something, he starts playing chess, he's not impressed by it. You know, you and I, we're going to learn how to play to we're impressed by chess. It's a very official intellectual game. And we're inhibited, and we, we think about it. You take some little squirt who's three, he doesn't know anything. The intellectual say, hey, kid, you want to play a game? He says, yeah. Here, 
Yeah, this thing is called a pawn. Huh? Yeah? The thing with a round thing? Yeah, it's a pawn. Now, this is called a knight. Oh, it's got a horse. Yeah, it's a knight. Now, this is a king. Oh, look at it. It's got a crown. Yeah. Well, now, how do you play it? Well, the object is to do so-and-so, so-and-so. Oh, okay, let's play. And five minutes later, the little son of a gun is a grandmaster champion. That's right. This is what happened to Bobby Fisher. In fact, uh, he got a chess set. I think it was from his sister. And within 20 minutes, he's cleaning up the neighborhood. And five minutes after that, he's in the Manhattan Chess Club, and he's cleaning up everybody. He still doesn't know it, you know, as much to the game. And by the time he was nine, he's cleaning up guys from Russia and stuff, see? Well, now, had he started at 20, it would never have happened that way. Just couldn't have. Well, at the age of 10 or 12, me and Schwartz and Flick and Bolas got on this pinochle kick. Now, I don't know who taught us the game. I don't remember any adult coming and saying, here's the way you play pinochle. We just knew how to play pinochle. Well, we started to play this game one summer, and we played it out of just steady. I never played it with a grown-up, just with Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and Bolas. Bolas, the Polish particularly liked pinochle. And Bolas Rutkowski was one of the great pinochle players of all time. And we would sit and play. We'd play all kinds. Then we'd play variations like double-deck pinochle. We'd play different types of variations because, you know, you get bored with the regular game. And we got so good that we could play pinochle with one, you know, with, with your head turned off. You could just play right. Well, it was about, I'd say, two years after we went into this pinochle kick. And uh, I was playing with Bolas and Schwartz every day, every hour, playing, uh, you know, maybe 20, 15 hours a day at pinochle. We would play hundreds of games. And we could remember every play. I like like there'd be a big argument break out. Schwartz said, "Oh, Bolas, you did it again. I remember that. You did that again about three weeks ago. You remember Tom and I led with the with the Jack and you, and uh, they could remember every play. So <laughs> it was kind of an embarrassing thing happened. I I never thought of this game much, except that it was a game that Schwartz and Flick and Bolas and myself played. Well, one Sunday, we visited my grandpa. And my grandpa was, you know, he was, a, he was a typical, a true grandpa. He had a handlebar mustache, and uh, he loved to play pinochle. He was about 87 years old, and he was considered a great pinochle player. And so every Sunday when we would go to visit my grandma and my grandpa, uh, all the sons-in-law, including my old man, uh, their, their big afternoon would be to go into the kitchen and sit around this round oak table and play pinochle with my grandpa. He loved it. And they'd have about 28 cans of beer all lined up in front of them, and they'd play pinochle all day long. Well, the kids were, you know, were sent out to play. We would go down to the park, and we'd play on the swings and that jazz. I don't know, about 10, maybe 11. And so on this Sunday, they're, they're sitting out to play the pinochle. The old grandpa, he's, he's dealing out the cards, and, and uh, I'm just about to go. when Uncle Fred says, oh, doggone it. He says, son of a gun. Oh, gee, listen, you guys, you're just going to have to hold off for a while. He says, I've got to go home because I left the thing on in the basement. He says, I've got to go. So he lived about four blocks away, so Uncle Fred cut out, and here they were. They needed a fourth at Pinochle. So I'm walking around, and the old man says, hey, you play Pinochle with, with Bolas, don't you? And my grandfather immediately says, oh, come on, you know, gee, you know, playing with a kid. <laughs> And well, I'm very embarrassed. See, I, I never thought of this game as connected with the, the, what the grown-ups did. See, I'd see my old man play Peter, but that was another thing. So the old man says, well, come on. He says, why don't you play until, until uh, Uncle Fred comes home? He says, now, uh, uh, he says, now, you sure you know how to play? He said, now, uh, 
you kids play pinochle. I seen you play pinochle. I said, no, you, you just just play, and then uh, don't worry about it. We won't laugh or anything when you make a mistake, because we're just going to hold it down until Uncle Fred comes back. Well, so old Grandpa sits there, and he takes a great slug of his beer, and they start dealing the cards out. Well, instantly, I fall into my pinochle stand, see, because I've been playing pinochle now for two years, night and day. I mean, with the intuitiveness of a kid. So I get the cards, you know, they're all dealt to me. Instantly, I put them in the in the order, see, just like that. And so I am playing with my Uncle Carl. See, we're playing partners. See, Uncle Carl is my partner. And so Uncle Carl, he gives the first bid. He's to the left of my grandpa, or to the right, or whatever it is. He, he bids like that, and I look at my cards and say, huh. Well, we had even gotten so sophisticated in our playing that all the bids had a meaning. That you, when you made a bid, you were saying something to your partner. So I said, huh. I see Uncle Carl strong in hearts, all right? Uh, with that, uh, uh, my dad, who's to my right, he bids. I says, uh-oh, that's trouble. And so I make my bid, and the Grandpa makes his bid, and then we start going around, see? And with that, I can see the eyes are starting to open up. See, I'm making these bids. And uh, I get the first bid. <laughs> and I had a strong hand in spades. As a matter of fact, I remember it very well. So I had a strong hand in spades. So I start to meld. My father's saying nothing. And within ten minutes, it became obvious there was only one real pinochle player sitting at this table. And guess who it was? Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't Uncle Carl, who didn't know from bidding nothing. I re- very quickly realized he was just fooling around. He'd make a bid, he'd holler, ah, 225. <laughs> he didn't know what he was doing. And, I, and, you know, it's terrible to discover that your father's a phony. You know, for years, my father had, had convinced everybody in our house that he was a great pinochle player. I played with him ten minutes, and I knew this guy couldn't play pinochle any better than my Aunt Min, you know, could play tennis. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm playing pinochle. Well, of course, I don't have to tell you that, that me and Uncle Carl turned these two guys inside out and hung them out to dry. And by the time Uncle Fred came back, there was a funny atmosphere around the table. They're sitting there drinking their beer, they're very quiet. And so Fred comes back, and he says, oh, Jeannie, he's been playing with you, huh? Well, uh, okay, guys, we can now start the game now. We'll sit down and start the game. Well, thanks, Jeannie, for playing. And I says, uh, yeah, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. And my dad says, well, go on out and play now with uh, your cousin Buddy out at the swings. <laughs> and I left the house there. And, and from that moment on, uh, I, I had a, a whole different atmosphere towards these guys that would go out into the kitchen on Sunday. You know, uh, suddenly I realized that uh, that uh, I could do something that they couldn't do, play pinochle. Well, the next sport that we got hung on completely, and I mean so hung on that we were doing it 24 hours a day, was tennis. Now, me and Schwartz, there were only two of us that got hung on this game with me and Schwartz. And how it started, it started because, well, there was a girl named Eileen Akers, who I happen to have a thing on. And uh, Eileen Akers was uh, one of these girls who played tennis. And so I'd see her at the tennis courts, and, and uh, I'd hang around. The next thing you know, I'd get myself a racket, and Schwartz has got a racket, and we start to play. Well, at that time, I had a paper route. And my paper route was one of these early morning things. I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'd deliver the morning paper, and I'm through with my paper route about 6.30 in the morning. Well, Schwartz had another route. He was on the route, too. So every morning, we would be through with our paper route at 6.30. We'd done our job. And we would go over to the, the local park. We had a big public park there in about 25 courts. And we would go there at 6 in the morning. Nobody else was there, just a couple of fat businessmen are pinging the ball back in a, before, before they go to work. 
And Schwartz and I would start playing tennis at 6.30 in the morning. And believe it or not, we would not stop playing tennis until it was too dark to see the ball. Now, this is in the summertime, and, and the, 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 the sun would go down like 9.30 at night. And I am not exaggerating. I'm telling you the absolute God's honest truth. We got so involved in this that from 6.30 in the morning, we would play until maybe 9 o'clock. And we would eat only candy bars. We would quit about noon and run over and get a candy bar and come back and start playing tennis again. It just got us like some kind of a maelstrom. And we played tennis night and day, only with each other. I never played tennis with anybody else, just me and Schwartz playing tennis. And I was left-handed. And we played violent games. I, I remember some games, we would go like to uh, games of like 52-50. The lead would seesaw back and forth, back and forth. You know, we, but fantastic backhand shots. We played on and on and on all summer. You got it now. We played all summer. Well, then, we thought of this as just a thing we did. You know, certain people think of the sports they do as official. You know what I mean? That some guys will take up tennis, and automatically they see themselves in a sport that other people play, and they think of themselves as going on to becoming junior champions of Westchester or some damn thing like that. Uh, this is true of, uh, of golf. Uh, most of the caddies I knew, I was a caddy, too. Most of the caddies I knew never thought of themselves as golfers. They'd just go out and hit the ball around, you know. And some of these guys could drive 400 yards without even thinking, say. But they never thought of themselves in connection with, with professional or even official golfers. Well, so that's the way we were with tennis. So Schwartz and I are playing tennis just all summer. Winter comes, it's all over. Just like that. We don't even think of tennis. And so uh, all winter, it, you know, life goes on. Now I'm playing football. I'm doing the other stuff. It's spring again. The sun comes up. It's warm. The tennis courts are rolled out. Schwartz and Shepard are on the tennis courts at, at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they're playing tennis again. Remember, this is two summers. Two summers. Absolutely devoured. Completely devoured by tennis. We played, and I mean seven days a week. We did not take time off like on Sunday. We played from 5 in the morning on Sunday. You know, that, uh, our paper route wasn't on Sunday, see? So we played seven days a week. So we did. Play tennis. Well, it was late in the fall, or rather late in the, really late in summer. It was about August, something like that. And Schwartz and I are having one of our usual fantastic battles. We're sweating. Boy, you know, it's one of these games, 102 to 100. You know, we're sweating, knocking the ball back and forth. And we used to wear our balls. I'll tell you, we wore our balls like, like uh, every two days we'd get a new set of balls. That was the big problem. And I was spending all my money on tennis from that time on. Every time I would get my 87 cents for my paper out, I'd buy myself a, a can of Wilson balls, you know, those three things like that. I'd get my tennis racket restrung. I had it restrung every couple of months. And uh, it was my whole life. I remember the big moment when I bought a clamp, you know, the tennis racket clamp. And that somehow made it very official. I put my racket in a clamp. And I never could figure what the hell that thing did. See, but I put it in a clamp anyway and carried it around. Made it twice as heavy, but, uh, you know, it made me look like a tennis player. So that, that summer... It was about like late August. A guy comes walking over. And, you know, this was a remember, public park. A guy comes walking over one day, and Schwartz and I are batting the ball back and forth. And uh, I'm, I'm standing next to the chicken wire fence gasping. <laughs> he said, say, he said, um, what's your name? I said, Shepard. He said, who's that kid? I said, Schwartz. He said, you, uh, you guys play for Hammond High or what? I said, well, what? Play what for him and I? He said, well, tennis. 
So no, we just play here every day at the courts. He said, well, I see you kids play every day at the courts here. He said, uh, I'm, the, uh, I'm the athletic coordinator here at the park here. He said, I see you kids play every day. He said, have you seen me down in the office? Today? We never went to the office at the park. We just go out on the tennis courts, start playing, see. He said, see you kids. I thought you kids were playing on the tennis team or something. You were practicing. I said, no. He said, you mean you kids never play any competition tennis? I said, no. Oh, well, yeah, Schwartz. I, I, I try to beat Schwartz. Schwartz tries to beat me once in a while. He wins once in a while. I win. He said, well, how about entering the uh, Park Junior doubles? Did you guys ever play doubles? Doubles? We've heard of doubles. And, you know, we'd see these people on the other courts once in a while. There'd be four or five people playing, but that sounds like another game. See, he says, doubles. That's what we mean, doubles. He said, well, you know, you two guys play on the same team. You play the other people. I said, well, yeah. He said, well, you guys should be pretty good at it. I mean, you play with each other all the time. You know, you know each, other, each other's strokes and everything. You ought to be able to play it. So I said, well, how do, why do you enter it? He said, well, just put your name down on the list. He says, down on the bulletin board. Don't your kids ever go by the office? I said, no. He said, well, look, down on the bulletin board, there's a list. You can put your name down there to be in the tennis championship. It's, uh, you know, city park title. So Schwartz and Flick put their names down. Or Schwartz and Shepard. We never put out our name down, and that was it. About three days later, in the mail, comes a note. And it's all official from the Hammond Park Department. And it says that the tennis tournament is about to begin the following Saturday. And we will appear at Turner Field, which was a completely different park. Appear at Turner Field at 9 o'clock in the morning. And that they will begin the draw for the doubles. <laughs> so, sure enough, Saturday morning, Schwartz and me, we get in the bus, and we get out of Turner Field, and we got our tennis rackets, and incidentally, we had all wrong clothes, you know. I played, believe it or not, I played in blue jeans. And so, <laughs> you know, all these other guys come out, they got the white shirts and all that jazz. And so, we get out of the bus, and we walk, and there's a whole bunch of people standing around, very official-looking people, grown-up ladies and mothers. I, I never realized until that moment that almost every kid athlete has behind him a frustrated father, usually with a big pot, or an angry mother who never made anything in her life, and she's going to make sure that the junior, you know, is something. And so here are all these mothers and fathers. My mother didn't even know I was going on this Saturday, see? So sure enough, they have the draw. And Shepard and Schwartz drew two people, one kid named Johnson. I didn't know, know the other kid, but there was two kids named Johnson and something. And they were from, you know, the town. I never saw them before because this is a big city, you know. And so we were to play at 11 o'clock in the morning on the third court, third from the end. So here we were, we're sitting back there, and all these guys are starting to play tennis. See, people out there, I never saw anything like it. They're playing away there. Well, Schwartz and Shepard played the first game of doubles they ever played that morning at 11 a.m. against Johnson and whoever the other kid were. And incidentally, both of these guys were at least a foot taller than we were. Uh, you know, we, we could out there. And, and I want to tell you this. What Schwartz didn't have in height, he made up in fanaticism. It was from Schwartz that I learned about the maniacal qualities of short people. Schwartz, <laughs> Schwartz was, was like Napoleon. I mean, whatever Schwartz couldn't do by talent, he did by sheer tenacity. He was a bulldog. And so Schwartz is playing the net and Shepard is playing back. Because we watched these guys. We saw that's the way it's done. <laughs> we start to play. Well, I don't have to tell you what happened. Schwartz and Shepard knocked these guys off 
in three straight sets. I think they won two games. It was easy. It was fantastic. And they were bugged. They were throwing their tennis rackets into the net, all that jazz, you know. So when it was over, we, we, we won. Well, there were a lot of other people that won, too, you know. This was the first thing. So that afternoon, at 3 o'clock, we played another pair. And these guys had beaten their guys in the morning. I remember the, 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 the pair. I, I don't remember their names, but I remember how they looked. One of them was sort of a chunky guy with red hair, and he had freckles. Real chunky, big-chested guy. Tremendous speed. Uh, the other guy that he played with was tall and skinny. Had very, very skinny waist. And he had a big Adam's apple. And he had a, kind of a blonde hair. Remember these two guys? And we started to play tennis. Well, I want to tell you, these guys were out of the same mold Schwartz was out of. I mean, especially the red-headed guy. This guy would lay flat on his stomach and crawl to the ball. So he'd sweat pouring off. And the, the four of us are playing tennis. We played. It was tied. We played about, must have been about 400 games until finally, late in the afternoon, it was about 5.30 in the afternoon, about two hours and a half after we started, Schwartz shot one down the side, down the sideline. He picked that corner just like a, like a, you know, just pow, and we won. We were winners. Well, there was a lot of yelling and hollering. And there we stood. We were in this thing. Well, I'll have to carry it down to the last day. The entire week went by, and this tournament was held every Saturday. They would go from Saturday to Saturday. The next Saturday, we again won two sets. We won two sets against two different pairs of opponents. And all of a sudden, without any warning, Shepard and Schwartz are in the finals of the junior tennis tournament in Hammond. <laughs> and if you're curious, you can look it up. There we were and say, I can't believe it. By that time, you know, it's in the papers. And my mother one night, I remember coming home from, from something. I was out somewhere. And she says, I just got a telephone call. What did you do? And I said, you're in, you're in the paper. And I said, I'm in the paper. What for? Because it never had occurred to me that this thing was that big. And so I rushed out and got the Times, and there it was. It was a whole big story about these these two unknowns that had come on. Say, and there we are in the finals. Well, by that time, you know, we were getting pretty cocky. You know, we could really, we could really play tennis. And uh, we were beginning to think of ourselves, you know, in a very different way. When you, when you beat other people, you think of yourself in a different light. Well, that Saturday, it was at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We were playing in this big park in the middle of town. And I couldn't believe it. There must have been 500 people come out there. And it was the junior doubles final. And we were playing two guys that we had seen play a couple of times before, but they were out there playing all, or usually down at the other end of the courts. I never really paid much attention to them. All right. One guy's name was Harold Standish. You got it? The other guy's name was Stanley W. Roper. Evil names. We tossed to see who would get the, the uh, serve. They won. We lined up on the court. I'm back on the back baseline, waiting, and I'm feeling cocky. You know, these guys were no bigger than us. Feeling cocky. Roper is down there getting ready to serve. He throws the first ball up into the net. You know, while he's back. I says, uh huh, all right. The next serve, the second serve, which was usually, you know, the lollygaggle serve. The next serve, this guy lays one right down the center line. 
he picked up a little dust and a little bit of that limestone, and that thing went past me so fast that I didn't even see it until it hit the chicken wire behind me, and I saw a puff of dust still hanging in the air. It just went, just like, aced. And there's a little murmur goes, and Schwartz looks around at me, and Schwartz has got this this white face. He's angry. He's aced on the first one. So we move to the opposite side of the court. See, we're all set. Well, this roper winds up. I never saw anybody serve a ball like he served. Have you ever seen a jumping overhand serve? I'm telling you what this guy did. I never saw a serve. It, to this day, I haven't seen a serve like that. He would throw the ball up. It looked conventional at this point. He would lean way back, throw the ball up high, and then leave his feet. Literally jump up at the ball and whack. He gave that son of a gun a cut. I want to tell you that came in like a screaming corkscrew. And that ball would go, shoot. That's just true. Well, he whipped that second one past me. I want to tell you, I was, you know, at that point, I'm getting a little scared. Well, the third service, now, they, you know, he's aced me twice. The third service, Shepard at least gets his tennis racket in front of it. <laughs> I get it out there, and it goes, and I thought it hit the racket, see, and I knew it was a bad hit. The thing went way up in here. It was a high lob, see, that just landed about two feet the other side of the net, and his net man was waiting, see. That thing went way up. It bounced twice. just up like that, and wham, that smash. This guy leaves his feet, and he practically flattened Schwartz. I mean, Schwartz is laying on the ground, see? That thing creased him. You could see the blood coming from where it creased him over the ear, you know? Whew. Well, I don't have to tell you, it was an afternoon that I have, well, I just, you've never heard me tell this story. It's, it's one of those dismal afternoons that you just don't want to remember. We just struggled and struggled and struggled, and by the end of the first set, which incidentally we lost 6-0, by the end of the first set, there was no question who was going to win this match, and, and by the end of the, roughly the fourth game of the second set, the people began to go away, you know, and that's very embarrassing when people start laughing at you, and, and, and so ultimately, of course, we, we, we went down in, in baleful defeat, and these two guys did what you always see in newsreels. They jumped over the net. <laughs> you know, they'd seen all this stuff. Grab your hand and that bit. Well, they, they, the reporter came up and he said, uh, what happened? What happened? And I said, what reporter? That's such a damn silly question. You know, that's like asking a guy who just won a presidential election. Uh, uh, are you, uh, how do you feel? It was an insane question. Of course he feels good. Of course he feels groovy. And he won. He's the president. You know. But, but reporters keep asking these questions. It's the Gabe Gabe Pressman syndrome. You know. What happened? Schwartz says we lost. He says, yeah, yeah, that's true. You did lose. But the, what happened? I said, guy, well, we got beat. But why did you get beat? What happened? You guys, uh, you know, semifinals. So they're better than we are. Which was the God's honest truth. And he said, oh, come on, quit putting me on. Now, what happened, guys? Uh, silly. We're, we're hot and sweating and mad. Well, that night that came out in the papers, because the old man is sitting there reading about it, and he, <laughs> he says, he says, you know, he says, how did you ever get involved in that sissy game anyway? And he always thought it was a sissy game. I said, oh, Dad, it's not a sissy game. It's a hard game. I realized that afternoon just how hard a game it was. 
And that was the last time in my life that I've ever been involved in competition tennis. And incidentally, that was the last summer that Schwartz and I ever played tennis. Because next year was the golf year, <laughs> which was an entirely different syndrome. And, and the year after that, we, we, we went from golf, we, we, we went into the swimming bit. And uh, it, it just consumes you all the way down the line, way down deep. Until finally, you know that you just can't do anything else. You got one of the, got us a ding-dong in there, Matt? All right, hit the Qantas button, please. Christopher Columbus was planning a trip. To travel agent who gave him the tip. Said the travel agent. Ray, listen to this. And he took it. Kids wound up in the minors. 
and played, uh, you know, summers while they were going to college for places like uh, Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, Blue Devils. And <laughs> but this this all-consuming thing of sports is, I think, one of the things that most city kids, real genuine city kids, never really get, unless it's a rare situation. You see it down in the village. Yeah, that, that, you know this concrete basketball down in the village, down on 6th Avenue, about 3rd Street? I want to tell you, you see these guys play basketball that the Knicks can't play. I've seen some basketball played down there that just cuts everything I've ever seen in my life. And they play at 4 in the morning. I saw a crowd, well, it's last week. I saw them down there at 4 o'clock in the morning playing the hottest, angriest, most ferocious, in-the-dark basketball game that I've ever heard of in my life. It's the slow-consuming maelstrom of competition. Man is a carnivorous animal, and he eats his fellow man most of all.